Uh, I am John Huggins. I'm chaplain at Berry College. I'm glad to be able to uh, speak and share this word with you this morning. Would you please pray with me briefly? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Would you please open the eyes of our heart to see you for all your worth and to find in that vision of you that which is most captivating and compelling. I ask in Christ's name, amen. I wanted to uh, speak to you this morning on a passage from the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 10, and last week, actually, uh, Pastor Brian uh, spoke uh, briefly on a a section of this passage, the part about the rich young man, and I'm going to skip over that and talk about the passages before and after it. Uh, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark in a Wednesday night home Bible study that my wife and I host on campus uh, at Barry for students. And we've just uh, gone through this section, and I've been struck by some of the things that are in this text. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, um, most scholars think this was probably the first of the four Gospels to be written. It is an action-packed sort of Gospel. It's fast-paced. It uh, keeps moving really quickly from one event to the next. It emphasizes Jesus' actions, um, uh, perhaps more than his teachings that you would get in the Gospel of Matthew or Luke or John. Uh, Even though it's the shortest of the four Gospels, it has the longest narratives. What I mean by that is if there's a story in Mark that you would also find in Matthew or Luke, you get a longer version of it in Mark, even though Matthew and Luke will tell us additional extra stuff that Mark doesn't tell us about. There's also lots of literary tools used in Mark's gospel. It's really quite fascinating and brilliant. I mean, these, these four gospels, I mean, they are... Uh, literary masterpieces to such a degree that you, I mean, you think they must have had some help writing these things. They're amazing. And Mark's is, Mark's is especially that way. Mark always has, seems to have the reader in mind as well. So he's crafted the story, selected the details, and put them together in such a way that he's consciously thinking about the reader and trying to draw the reader or the hearer into the story such that you are caught up in the action and are being led to respond to Jesus personally as a hearer, as a reader. In that sense, they are evangelistic. You're pulled into the story. And uh, when you read through Mark's gospel, you'll find that there's three groups of people that appear all throughout. Uh, And those three groups are the crowds, uh, the religious leaders, and the disciples. Now, the crowds are often witnessing Jesus' actions of healing and other miraculous actions, and they're always astonished, amazed. I mean, if you were to go through the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and just mark every time it says that the people were astonished or amazed, you'll see it's happening all the time. People are beside themselves. And sometimes they're, uh, the text says they're actually afraid. They have these strong reactions. The religious leaders, I mean, they're, they're like... Uh, the baddies, you know, in the story. You know, every time they come in, you should hear the Darth Vader music. You know, the bum, 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 ba-dum, bum. And they come to challenge Jesus in some way. Um, and they generally are not seeing him for uh, what he is and willfully rejecting uh, his, his work. The disciples are this third group of people, and they're interesting and complicated <clears throat> Uh, they, 
In Mark's gospel, one of the motifs is that they are never quite getting it. Uh, Jesus will say what will seem to us sometimes as a very straightforward explanation of who he is and what he's about to do, and they don't see it. They miss the point or misunderstand it. So, for instance, uh, the first eight chapters or so of Mark's gospel focus on Jesus doing all these miraculous actions, and he's showing he has authority over everything, over sickness, over nature, over death, over all things. And you're being led along as the reader until you get to chapter 8, which is right there in the middle of Mark's gospel, and Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And everything up to that point is meant to lead you to get the answer right. The answer is, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And the disciples get the answer right. And Jesus says, okay, now this is what that means. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to reject me. And they're going to kill me. And then I'm going to rise three days later. And almost immediately, the disciples are saying, whoa, 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 no, no, no. That's not, I mean, we get you're the Messiah, but that's not what it means to be the Messiah. And then Jesus has to rebuke them for their misunderstanding. Well, they continue to misunderstand as Jesus continues to tell them what's going to happen uh, several times throughout the text. So let me read this uh, selections from chapter 10. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus will give some explanation of his mission that you'll see how the disciples are not quite getting it and misconstruing the message, and then something about the example of children. And I want to say that this is uh, the second or third time that some of these things are happening in Mark's gospel. So let's uh, read the text, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, And the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Then the next section is about the rich young man that Brian spoke of last week. So I'm skipping over that for the moment to verse 32. And they were on the roads, Jesus and his disciples, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. There's that again. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Seems like a logical response to what Jesus just said, right? And he says to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten others heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'll continue to the next story, which is connected to what's just happened. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began crying out and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, like they did with the children earlier. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. So in this passage, again, we have Jesus, one, welcoming and saying something about children. He's actually done so already in chapter 9, the previous chapter, held up children as a kind of example. He's explained his mission to them now for the third time. This is something else he did in chapter 9. And the disciples don't get it and start talking about power and prestige. That also happened in chapter 9. Okay, I just read from chapter 10. All these, most of these things have happened already. There's a kind of pattern going on. In fact, we can pull up the chapter 9 passage. I know I just read a lot, but, you know, a lot of Scripture is not too bad for a sermon, right? I just want you to see this in these quick seven verses. Okay, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they went out from there and passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know he was there. He was teaching his disciples, saying, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. That was the second time he told them this. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Guess what they were discussing? Well, they kept silent because they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And is there more to that? Okay, I guess not. But again, bringing this child. So remember, what I just read happened before all the stuff I read to begin with. It's as if they're not quite following along. And did you know that before that passage I just read, there was this amazing moment where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the two people who feature in chapter 10, up on a mountain, and he is transfigured in front of their eyes. His glory is revealed. He shines brightly, and they're overwhelmed, and they don't know what to say. Uh, And as they're overwhelmed, God the Father speaks from heaven to them, and he says, 
This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's going to be an important thing to remember. (laughs) You have these preconceived ideas about how you think things should work. This is the one I want you to listen to. We see that they're not doing a very good job of it. Uh, They're going to eventually get it. And I want you to remember that Mark has the reader, the hearer. Dear reader, dear hearer, he is saying, this is not so much true of them anymore, but it might be true of you. Listen to him. So let me get into our chapter 10 text again for a second. Sorry that that's all a bit uh, confusing. In chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, if you can bring those back up on the screen. Jesus is again sort of exalting the status of children. Now, this paragraph is not crucial to the main points I want to make from this passage, but I can't skip over it, Uh, perhaps because uh, I'm a father, I'm drawn to this. In a world, the Greco-Roman world, where it wasn't too uncommon for children to be exposed if they were unwanted or where something like infanticide occurred, it's, rem- it's remarkable that Jesus would welcome children to him and set them up as a kind of example for how he wants his people to be. In this case, he's not saying, I want you to be immature. He's saying, I want you to, be, I want you to listen. I want you to be receptive and trusting and joyfully loyal, the way children are, so that you can enter the kingdom. But it's because of passages like this, like the two I've just referred to, that children, children are important in the church. Children are valuable in the church. Because of passages like this, we see that Jesus sees them. He knows them and welcomes them. He tells us that we can actually learn something from them about the way they are, even as we are teaching them about the Lord and His ways. And it's because of such passages that we can be confident God cares for our children and hears our prayers for them. And as someone who prays for my children often at night, I'm encouraged by passages like this to think that God might actually be responsive to the things I'm saying on their behalf. But let's move now to chapter, uh, verse 32 and 34. Uh, this is now the third time Jesus is explaining his mission to them. And notice what it says about the crowds who are kind of following along and the disciples, amazed again and afraid. You know, we can kind of read this story like you may have just done and be relatively unmoved by it. You're just like, okay, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus said this, said that. Okay, what's the point? But almost no one who encountered Jesus was unmoved by him. People were moved across a full range of responses. Some people were infuriated by Jesus. They were angry at him. I mean, you have otherwise pious people who, when they encounter Jesus, decide that the Sabbath is a good day to plot murder. You know, it's not a good day to heal, but Jesus healed, so let's plot how we're going to kill him. Um, People are astonished by him. Some people are confused. Think about John chapter 6 when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and some of the people are like, I don't get what this is about, and they leave. Other people are very excited. Some people think Jesus will serve their interest, but they're not unmoved. Well, Jesus explains this, and one of the things we're going to see in the next passage um, is that not only are the disciples not getting it, 
They're actually not that different from that rich young man that Brian talked about last week. The rich young man who went away sad because he could not see that Jesus was more valuable than his possessions. So he leaves and stays loyal to his possessions. In this case, the disciples, it's not that they don't see that Jesus is more valuable, but they are interested in using Jesus to get what's valuable to them. And so they come and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then there's a key question here. Now, this isn't really a terrible way to start a conversation, isn't it? You know, if you're a parent, if one of your children come up to you or if one of my students comes up and says, hey, I want you to do for me whatever I'm about to ask you, mm, I'm already leaning towards no, you know. It's like I'm already predisposed to say, Mm-mm, this better be good. And Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? Think about that question. How would you answer that? How would you respond to that? Jesus comes and stands before you and says, what is it that you want me to do for you? Let the Falcons win the Super Bowl next week. Lord, can you do that? I think people pray, men probably pray more during the playoffs than any other time during the, the year. No, but that's essentially what these guys are kind of saying. Would you make us awesome? Can we be awesome? Like, you're going to do your thing, and can we be the two guys who are right at your right and left? They're thinking about power and prestige. They're thinking about their positions. They're thinking in terms of earthly kingdoms. And consider all that they've seen and heard from Jesus so far. And Jesus' response to them is not, Okay, you know, I give you whatever you want because I'm just your sugar daddy. You know, I just give people what they want. Uh, You know, I'm just here to serve your self-interest. Jesus says, you got the wrong idea. That is not how this thing works. And he goes on to say that leadership in his kingdom is not about power and prestige. It's about laying aside those things to serve the people around you. In fact, Jesus says, that's what I've come for. That's what I'm like, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hopefully, if you're associated with the very college community, that kind of line sets off a signal in your brain. I've heard that somewhere before. It's uh, it's where our school motto comes from, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. I wonder if all Barry folk know that that's a quotation from Jesus. You know, they were saying, well, set Jesus as our model and example there. No, it is to not to be served, but to serve. And also, some scholars have seen in this, this cryptic statement about saying, this is not for me to decide, but it's for those whom, for whom it's been appointed, as a reference to the two thieves on the cross who would be crucified on either side of Jesus. That the king would be enthroned on a cross, and these would be the two beside him. Now, there is a sense in which... James and John will follow Jesus in their own way, but not in the way that they're asking. You see, when Jesus addresses their question, it's like he has to deconstruct their whole worldview. And then he has to reconstruct a kind of worldview where his answer will make sense. He has to say, the way you think about things is not the right way to think about things, so let me mess with that. Turn it upside down and inside out. And help you understand what it means to be my disciple. And let me just say as an aside that Jesus often has to do the same thing for us. 
we have a kind of worldview we want to insert Jesus into and make him our sort of maybe our political hero or uh, <clears throat> you know our spiritual guru or kind of uh, emotional therapist or you know whatever it is uh, stick him in that role and Jesus says I gotta I'm not just coming here for a spring cleaning this is a reference to something C.S. Lewis said we, we want Jesus in our heart we think he's coming just to give it a little spring cleaning and he's actually coming to rearrange the whole place so the whole thing, the whole thing needs to change James and John want to sort of impose their own vision on Jesus or synergize their ideas with his. They have their own idea of what the good life looks like, and they think following Jesus might be a good way to get it. So they're serving Jesus for their own interest's sake. And Jesus explains to them that they're not not actually seeing him for all he's worth. They're not understanding what he's actually about, even though they're with him. And again, Mark is saying to us, dear reader, (laughs) dear hearer, perhaps you are guilty of the same thing, not seeing Jesus for all he's worth. Maybe you're hoping Jesus will conform his own agenda to suit our self-interest. Now, let me say right here and proclaim that Jesus is here to serve us. As he says in the text, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But in what way? To give his life as a ransom for many. He's using this analogy of ransom as a way of, uh, a ransom is a price paid to deliver someone from bondage. He's saying what you need is something different than you think. You don't need the prestige and power. You need to be rescued. You need to be set free. You need to be given an entirely different kind of life. One that's filled with the Spirit. Jesus is the great rescuer who redeems us, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, dying to free us from sin, and rising to rule over a new redeemed people who are full of the Holy Spirit and not full of ourselves. Now, believe it or not, the next little story about Bartimaeus is very much connected to the story that just precedes it. And what you should do when you're reading the Gospels is anytime you see a story about Jesus healing someone that's blind, is look for what's happening around it. Because oftentimes these stories are presented as a kind of implied rebuke or they're put in juxtaposition to someone else who is spiritually blind or someone who thinks they see but they don't. Consider, for instance, in John chapter 9, where there's the healing of the man born blind. He is presented in contrast to the Pharisees who think they do see how things are supposed to work. They think they see how God is supposed to be working in the world. And Jesus rebukes them, saying, you're actually blind because you think you see. But you don't. And in this case, Bartimaeus is presented in juxtaposition to the disciples. How do we know this? And one, one of the ways we know this is that Jesus asked Bartimaeus the same exact question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? That's the question that links the two stories. So Bartimaeus is this guy who hears that Jesus is coming through town. And we get a clue that blind Bartimaeus might be seeing more than we realize when he calls out, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. He calls out this messianic title. Maybe it's a clue that he sees who Jesus is. Um, Of course, the disciples want to keep him away. Jesus welcomes him as he does the children. 
and is responsive to him and ask him this key question. What do you want me to do for you? And it seems that Jesus likes what Bartimaeus asks a little better than he does what James and John ask. He says he wants to see. And Jesus tells him that your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Uh, Some translations will say uh, your faith has made you well, your faith has healed you, or your faith has saved you. It's the Greek word sozo, which can be translated save or heal. Uh, But I think it seems to be saying more than just you're recovering your sight, but your trust in Jesus is bringing salvation, full healing. And what is Bartimaeus' response? It says that he recovered his sight and followed him. He begins to follow Jesus along the way. You see, these blind people who are healed by Jesus are ready to rely on him and follow him humbly and gratefully, while others are willfully rejecting Jesus on the one hand or perhaps trying to use Jesus towards some other end and are not seeing. What I think we're supposed to learn from Bartimaeus is that God wants us to trust in Jesus, to believe in what he says and follow him, not to try to get him to follow us because Jesus is Lord, not us. He's in charge. And the reason why that's a good thing is because he knows what's best, and we don't. He leads us according to God's will. Remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And Mark is saying through these stories that Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted to deliver, to heal and save us in the most ultimate sense. Bartimaeus cries out, have mercy on me. Mark is saying, Jesus will be merciful to those who cry out to him for mercy. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has secured our release from the powers of sin and death. And now he is saying, listen to me, trust and follow me. Let me bring the question back up again. How might you and I respond if Jesus were standing in front of us and he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's not a, new, not a neutral question. In other words, some responses are better than others. What does it seem like Jesus wants us to say in light of these passages? Bartimaeus says, let me see. And Jesus allows him to see him for all he's worth. And so Bartimaeus follows him. In Christianity, in the Bible, to see Jesus is to see God. And in Matthew chapter 5, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I get the idea from passages like this, that the purity of heart required to see God is not so much the lack of sin, the lack of wrongs or failures in one's heart, But the purity of heart is equivalent to humble trust in Jesus. Humble trust in Jesus is the purity of heart required to see God. And when we see God for all he's worth, we begin only then to see ourselves and our world the way God wants us to see it. Let's pray.
our gracious Father, we appeal to you and say, please have mercy on us and open our eyes that we may see. And please forgive the ways in which we co-opt or try to force you to serve our own interests, especially when those are misguided. And we lack the wisdom to know when our interests are misguided. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray that you would give us eyes to see you as you are, who you are, and as a result, understand ourselves and our world as you do. Would you please work in every mind and heart now to open the eyes of our heart and mind and let us see. In Christ's name, amen.